the greatest concerns we have as humans relate to temperature. When it comes to the seasons, we use temperature to determine whether it is winter or summer, and if it is a good or bad day outside. When it comes to cooking, the length of time needed to prepare a dish properly is based upon the heating temperature. In science, a reaction will proceed, stop, or be reversed due to extrinsic or intrinsic temperature. And in medicine, we use temperature to determine whether we are healthy or have a fever and are sick. In much the same way, God assesses his children's lives based upon their spiritual temperature. So what is your spiritual temperature to the Lord? If God were to use a thermometer on your soul, would he say that you are within a spiritual winter or a spiritual summer? Well, you may be surprised to find that if you and I are somewhere in the middle, this temperature is actually more offensive to God than if we were on one of the extremes. With this in mind, let's take a look at what it means to be spiritually lukewarm and see how we can avoid this apathetic spiritual destiny through God's biblical guidance. To first, under this, to first understand this topic of spiritual temperature, let's turn to the passage where it is discussed in the greatest detail. Let's go to Revelation 3 and verse 14. Revelation 3, verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So from the beginning of this passage written to the Laodicean church of historic times, God already states that he is completely aware of his children's spiritual temperature. But what is peculiar to note here, though, is that there is a spiritual temperature that is neither hot nor cold, but one that God does not want us to be. Let's see God's reaction to this spiritual temperature. Verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Wow. God truly sounds extremely frustrated here. This spiritually lukewarm temperature is simply not pleasing to him. Just as cold water is wonderful for quenching thirst and hot water is great for warming drinks such as coffee or tea, God sees a lukewarm spirit as being very good for very little but removal. I've on many occasions heard on many occasions heard that the definition of hell is absence from the presence of God. So for God to say that he will spew the lukewarm person out of his mouth is practically practically like saying he will place that person into hell. Yikes. <laughs> oh, that is a terrible thought that none of us would ever want to even think about. But the wonderful thing about God is that he doesn't ever want his children to be surprised by his judgments, but reveals his plans throughout his words contained within scripture. So let's learn how God instructs one to avoid the separation from him due to a lukewarm spiritual life. Let's continue reading on in verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wait, what a biblical riddle. 
How is it that someone can be rich, be increased with goods, have need of nothing, but somehow have no clothing to wear and be poor? This is because the poorness, blindness, and nakedness that God refers to here is spiritual, not physical. Many of us spend so much of our energy and time focusing on ways to make more money and acquire more material possessions. But is this the way God wants us to live? Now, God would never want us to live a beggarly life of abject poverty and even says in 1 Timothy 5 verse 8, But if any man provide not for his own and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. Yet even with this, God wants us to approach our seeking of material possessions in a different way than the world seeks them. Please put a marker here in Revelation, but let's see how God wants us to approach the attainment of possessions by turning to Matthew 6. And we'll start at verse 19. Matthew 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where the thieves do not break through nor steal. But where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So this is the approach that God wants us to take to life. He doesn't want us to be overly concerned about being materially rich and having the largest bank account possible. But he wants us to invest in what I'll call our our spiritual bank account. Now, as we read on, we'll just see how to do that. Verse 24. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Here Jesus plainly states that we cannot serve both God and a desire to gain wealth at any cost, which is mammon. So what are we supposed to do in this life where food, clothing and money and possessions are so needed? Does God want us to simply live destitute and have nothing so that we may prove our love for him? Not at all, thankfully. Thankfully, for God is our provider. Verse 25, therefore, I say unto you, take no thought for your life, what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body, what you shall put on is not the life more than meat and the body than raiment. Behold, the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly father feedeth them. Are ye not much more better than they? Which of you by taking thought can add one cubit unto his stature? And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewith shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. Yes, God does not want us to be consumed with concerns over having money to buy food and clothing. Because he looks down from heaven upon us, as his children will provide these necessities for us. 
After all, Jesus states that if God is willing to make beautiful coverings for flowers and grass, which we all cut down and throw away as we landscape, how much more so would God be willing to clothe the children whom he has made in his image and has imbued with the awesome potential to be cleansed from sin and receive the gift of everlasting life? Immeasurably so, brethren. And it is this huge discrepancy that Christ wants us to ponder and then comprehend. So then we see that the first step to building our spiritual bank accounts is to stop concerning ourselves with the acquisition of material possessions and have the faithful knowledge that God is observing every step of our lives and will provide all that we need and many of the things that we want too. But there's another extremely important step that God wants us to consider. Verse 33. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take, therefore, no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Brothers and sisters, this is one of the greatest keys to building our spiritual bank accounts and living for the Lord, setting our eyes upon the glorious kingdom he has prepared for us and his, the righteousness that he desires of our character. But what does it actually mean to seek ye first the kingdom of God as Jesus instructed? Let's start off answering this question by looking into the testimony of one of the Bible's most special patriarchs, King David. Turn with me to, I'm going to go to Psalms 27, verse 1. Psalm 27, verse 1. A Psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my light. Of whom shall I be afraid? Now, I don't know if you realize this, but these words are truly powerful coming from David. For not only was he the young man who faced the mighty soldier Goliath, but he is also one who spent years of his life fighting as one of Israel's most successful warriors in numerous battles. But then having to run for his life once King Saul's jealousy was kindled against him and even having to run from his own son's jealousy later during his rulership. So the circumstances of David's life could have certainly allowed him to be overcome by fear because people truly sought to take his life on an almost daily basis. But let's keep reading to see what he set his eyes upon so that this fear would not have rule over him. Verse four, one thing have I desired of the Lord that that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Wait a minute. What was the one thing that David said he desired and would seek after? It was to dwell in the house of the Lord. Now, isn't that the exact same thing that Jesus told us to seek after and to seek first? Of course. And it is for this reason that David could face the shadow of death so regularly, but not fear, as most of us may. Because he was looking towards something far greater than this earth could provide. But let's see the benefits he found for seeking after God's kingdom. Verse 5. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. 
And now shall mine head be lifted up above mine enemies round about me. Therefore will I offer in his tabernacle sacrifices of joy. I will sing, yea, I will sing praises unto the Lord. Amen, brother David. What a testimony of faith he provides us with here. Even during these dreadful times of having his life pursued, we can hear David's faith ring out because he knew that God would protect him from his adversaries, give him peace and exalt him before them during this life and that which is to come. Yes, David has shown us that to seek ye first the kingdom of God means to put aside the fears of this world that may fill our thoughts and replace those dark thoughts with meditations about being in the presence of the Lord at all times. And when we do this, God will truly be with us and protect us from any and every obstacle that may come our way. And continuing with this, let's read another powerful example of a servant of God who sought the kingdom of God first and had an amazing miracle performed for him. The example we'll look at right now is that of the prophet Daniel. Let's go over to Daniel 6, verse 1. Daniel 6 and verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and hundred and twenty princes, which should be over the whole kingdom, and over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first, that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. (laughs) You better believe Daniel had an excellent spirit in him, because what was that spirit? None other than God's Holy Spirit, of course. And we see that because of this, Daniel was greatly blessed and became the highest president of the three who were appointed. But as is the way of this world, Daniel's colleagues were far from happy for him, but instead allowed his success. Their petty jealousy. Verse four. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Now, as the account goes, these men could find could not find any fault in Daniel regarding his work or wisdom because he was an honorable man. But then they realized that they could use Daniel's faith against him. And so they had the king Darius sign a decree that would force everyone to only petition the king for 30 days. This doesn't sound so bad, right? Well, it was bad because what it meant was that no one could seek the Lord through prayer for an entire month. And that if they did, they would be thrown to their death into the dreadful lion's den. So how did Daniel react when this decree went into effect? Well, he did what I hope you and I would do as well. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed... He went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. So in the face of this great danger, Daniel did the complete opposite of what the decree instructed. Not only did Daniel petition the Lord God through prayer, but he did so three times a day, just as he always did in the past. And just like David, Daniel here shows us a tremendous example of faith in action 
For he did not allow the fearsome words of man to pull him away from his dedication to God because he knew that the eternal blessings of God far outweighed those of this life. But was Daniel's faith unjustified? Was he naive to continue praying? Or should he have simply done the quote-unquote smart thing and stopped praying to God? After all, it was just for one month. Let's continue reading to find out. Verse 15. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is that no decree nor statute which the king established may be changed. Then the king commanded and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. I can just see the smug looks on these evil presidents' faces and hear their insulting tone, similar to the ones who said to Jesus, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. But as with Jesus, God had a tremendous miracle in store For these unfaithful men to behold. Verse 19. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lions' mouth. And that they have not hurt me, for as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceeding glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. Amen. Hallelujah. So according to verse 24... Why was no hurt found upon Daniel? Because the scripture says he believed in his God. Brethren, Daniel did at least two amazing things in this passage that I must point out. Number one, during this time of desperation, he never stopped praying to and praising God. And number two, he never allowed his faith and belief in God to waver. In light of such a circumstance, many of us would have spent most of the day wondering what we should do and worrying about how we should act. Instead, the first thing we read that Daniel did was return to his room and pray. In other words, the first thing that Daniel did was seek the kingdom of God. So how do we seek first the kingdom of God? Just as Daniel, instead of worrying about the difficulties of this life, Let us first turn to God in prayer and praise. Now now that we've read these passages about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, let's look forward to Revelation to see another problem that God had with the lukewarm Laodicean church. Verse 17. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. As we saw earlier in Matthew, God desires to bless us with what we need and often what we want. But notice the problem with the Laodiceans. All of their boasting relates to material possessions. They boast of their riches, 
goods and wants of nothing, possibly even saying, oh, I am so blessed. But according to God, they are still wretched and naked because they have not sought first the kingdom and spiritual riches of God to obtain these earthly riches, but have sought the physical riches first and put God's kingdom on the back burner. Let's look at another Old Testament example of a people who declared themselves to be rich, but did not obtain these riches in a way that was pleasing to God. We're going to go to Micah 6 and verse 8. Micah 6 and verse 8. He that showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city, and the man of wisdom shall see thy name. Hear ye the rod, and who hath appointed it? Are there yet the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is abominable? So immediately we're seeing here that there are riches that man can obtain by means of wickedness and those that which are considered abominable to God. Let's continue to understand why. Verse 11. Shall I count them pure with the wicked balances and with the bag of deceitful weights? For the rich men thereof are full of violence, and the inhabitants thereof have spoken lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. Yes, the reason God considers their riches abominable is because they obtained it through violence, lies, and deception. Attributes which from day one would place anyone in the same realm as our adversary, the devil, and immensely conflicts with the character God wants us to develop. And when our riches are obtained in this manner, then God will have no recourse but to discipline us. Verse 13. Therefore also will I make thee sick in smiting thee, and making thee desolate because of thy sins. Thou shalt eat but not be satisfied, and thy casting down shall be in the midst of thee, and thou shalt take hold but shalt not deliver. And that which thou deliverest will I give up to the sword. Thou shalt sow, but thou shalt not reap. Thou shalt tread the olives, but thou shalt not anoint thee with oil, and sweet wine, but shalt not drink wine. What a terrible outcome will befall those who gained such physical wealth, but did not do so while seeking spiritual wealth. In the end, their riches will not stay, but will be replaced by sickness, dissatisfaction, or unfruitfulness. Yes, God is trying to show us that there is a far greater set of riches we are to be seeking than that which is simply of material value. For the blessings of material value and wealth can be taken away, but those sought after from heaven will remain with us, not only during this lifetime, but for an eternity. So what does God want us to do if we take a look at our lives Examine our hearts and see that we are going down this path of desiring physical riches more than spiritual riches. As always, God will not leave us to wander through this life blindly, but has placed his admonition in his word for us to see. Let's return back to Revelation to see how he admonished the Laodicean church. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire that thou mayest be rich and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. This is the way 
to true riches and is what God desires of us when we see ourselves falling away. But what does all of this mean? To buy gold, white raiment, and anoint our eyes with salt? I don't have time to cover them all today, but I don't believe it is any coincidence that one of the cures for being lukewarm is the spiritual purchase of material that is being described as tried in the fire. So what is it that can bring heat to us again? And how can we regain this fire that God seems so greatly to desire from us? As we read earlier, faith in God and prayer are two ways. But let's look at another Old Testament prophet who had an experience that will hopefully answer this very question. Let's go over to Jeremiah 20 and verse 3. Jeremiah 20, verse 3. And it came to pass on the morrow that Pashur brought forth Jeremiah out of the stocks. Then said Jeremiah unto him, The Lord hath not called thy name Pashur, but Magamorisabib. Verse 4. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will make thee a terror to thyself and to all thy friends, and they shall fall by the sword of their enemies, and thine enemies shall behold it. And I will give all Judah into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall carry them captive into Babylon, and shall slay them with the sword. Let's drop down to verse 6. And thou, Peshur, and all that dwell in thine house shall go into captivity, and thou shalt come to Babylon, and there sh thou shalt die, and shalt be buried there, thou and all thy friends to whom thou hast prophesied lies. These opening passages show Jeremiah boldly prophesying, not for, but against. These opening passages show Jeremiah boldly prophesying, not for, but against the son of a priest during his day. As such, he had to declare sad tidings to the ruler of Judah, and it angered Peshur, who even went as far as inflicting violence upon Jeremiah and later imprisoning him for his words. But for as boldly as Jeremiah seemed to pronounce his denunciative prophecy, this passage takes a serious turn at verse 7. Take a look at this. O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Every one mocketh me. For since I spake, I cried out. I cried violence and spoil, because the word of the Lord was made a reproach unto me, and a derision daily. So now we're no longer reading the words of Jeremiah to Peshur, but are actually reading the words of the prophet to God himself. Yet, what is so surprising about this passage is that Jeremiah is not proclaiming how blessed he is to God or how honored he feels to be a prophet. No, just like you and I may feel at times, Jeremiah is expressing his sadness that the prophetic blessing God has bestowed upon him must always be used to impart the sad destinies of those he is speaking to, which causes him not to hear the joy of others, but their reproach of him. So because of this feeling, Jeremiah makes a decision as a prophet that may surprise you as it did me. Verse 9. Then said I, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name. <laughs> wow. Wait a minute. What did Jeremiah attempt to do? Because he became weary of always imparting bad news and being the messenger everyone decided to shoot, 
This prophet who bore the words of God decided he would no longer mention God or speak any more in God's name. Now, I was in absolute shock when I first read this, because I think we're all led to see prophets as these completely focused, unwavering, godly robots who only seek and do the word of the Lord. (laughs) But here we see that though they have a great calling, even a prophet may sometimes find it difficult to live out that calling. But the beauty of even these times of insecurity is that God will not allow us to remain in this weakness, but will strengthen us. Now let's read all of verse 9 to see how God brought the prophet Jeremiah out of the funk that he found himself within. Verse 9 again. Then I said, I will not make mention of him nor speak any more in his name, but his word was in my heart as a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary with forbearing and I could not stay. (laughs) This scripture has revealed so much spiritual truth to us, brethren. Here we see that Jeremiah could not facilitate his plan because the word of God could not be left bound inside of him as he hoped. And with this said, Scripture is showing us what the fire is that revelation in God expects us to have. It is his word. Yes, you and I may not see ourselves as prophets who hear the word of God directly from an angel and deliver it to human beings. But just like Jeremiah, we have access to the word of God from heaven that has been sent from his throne by the Holy Spirit, written by the hands of the scribes, preserved by the sages of old and translated for us by our brethren, just so that we may have access to the same fire that Jeremiah did thousands of years ago. So if we do not want to become lukewarm in a way that is displeasing to the Lord, then we have to stay immersed in his word. After all. How does God describe even himself in scripture? Take a quick look. I know we probably all know the scripture very well. John 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. So Jesus and God the Father are defined as the Word. And every time we read or memorize the Scripture before us, we are taking in a little piece of God Himself. To me, that is one of the most amazing miracles to think about. So the more we not only learn the words of the Bible, but act upon it, then guess what? Then just like Moses, whose countenance shone so much that he had to cover his face with a veil, we, you and I, will become more and more like God and cause the lukewarm heart that we started with to be kindled and then to spark and in the end to burn with the fire that God desires of us. But in case you're still not convinced, turn with me to another passage describing the importance of God's word. And why it should be the focus of our lives. Let's go to 2 Timothy 3 and verse 14. 2 Timothy 3 verse 14. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, that, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, 
thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Brethren, these scriptures that we read are they're not simply nice stories or fables, as some would like us to believe. No, the words of the Bible were miraculously preserved for us for all of these generations because they contain the knowledge for man not to only be a better person, but as verse 17 says, to make the man of God perfect. Now to us, that may seem like a virtual impossibility. But with God, all things are possible, as Jesus told his disciples in Mark 10, verse 27. We must simply give ourselves time to be fed and to be nourished by these words. Then we will be amazed by its power over our lives. But as with all of the wonderful blessings that come with following God's admonition, there is an alternative consequence that we should never desire to fall into. As those... All of us here living in the end times, I feel as though it is important for us to look at this somber admonition. Let's go to back in scripture a little to Second Thessalonians 2 and verse 6. Second Thessalonians 2 verse 6. And now you know that withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who hath now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Brethren, the mystery of iniquity that Paul is speaking of here is are the works of the beast and false prophet who will deceive almost the entire world. As you can read more about in Revelation chapter 16 19 and 20. But how will someone who comes in the works of Satan, as it says in verse 9, be able to deceive so many people? The next verse holds the haunting answer. Verse 10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So why will it be that these people shall be so easily deceived? It is because they did not have the love of the truth. To so many, truth is relative and is not definable or confinable. But what does God say about truth and how does he define it? In the book right before this one, in 1 Thessalonians, we're given the powerful answer. You don't have to go there. Let's just read it. For this cause also thank you, God, without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Therefore, brethren, what is truth? Simply stated, truth is the word of God. So in verse 10 in Second Thessalonians 2 states that these people did not love the truth. It simply meant that they did not love the word of God that we are reading and listening to today. And because of this, there is a terrible dark fate that shall befall them. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What a sad end that I pray and have faith that none of us will have to face. 
Yes, trading the love of God's truth for the love of unrighteousness will lead to being cut off from God for an eternity. May we therefore grow in our love for God's word and seek to read and understand it daily so that our spiritual warmth may continue to grow into a fire. Typically, though, I don't know if it's the same with you, but it is. I felt this way when we think of spiritual fire may lead us to negative thoughts in our head, because the first thing I might think of or I thought of was hell or the lake of fire. So why is it that God would stress the point of becoming like fire to the Laodicean church? Let's look at a description of God himself in Deuteronomy 4, Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4, verse 23. Take heed unto yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image, or the likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. Interesting. So how is God described here? Note that he was not described as a cold, windy day or a light, mild breeze. No, not at all, but was called a consuming fire. You can't get any less lukewarm than that. Let's make sure this description wasn't a fluke. Let's go to the New Testament now. Let's verify it. By turning to, um, let's go to Hebrews 12, and we'll start at verse 25. Hebrews 12, verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. Verse 28. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved. Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. We see here that the description of God in Deuteronomy was no accident. Our God truly is a consuming fire. So when he instructs the Laodicean church and us not to be lukewarm, it is because he desires for us to be like him and to be so filled with his word that just like Jeremiah, we cannot help but proclaim them to the world and become them in thought and action. In Revelation 3, Verse 15 and 16, God spoke of the spiritual temperature of the Laodicean church. It was here that we learned how a lukewarm temperature is very displeasing to God and that we must seek to be spiritually hot. Yet this spiritual fire first starts with looking past physical riches, desiring the spiritual riches of a righteous character and seeking the wonderful kingdom that God is preparing for us. Through constant meditation, prayer, and an unwavering faith. We then saw that the spiritual heat, which will make us a consuming fire like our Lord, comes from learning, speaking, and living the words of his holy Bible. So brethren, what is your spiritual temperature? If it is lukewarm, let's continue to take our daily dose of God's word. Pray. Have faith and be filled with the fire of God's righteousness. Thank you for your time.